You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 228. Laura Berenger and Scott McKnight and becoming an agent of Tove. Just listen, you'll find out what Tove is. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Derek Nevins, and I am so grateful that you've downloaded and listened to this show. I know we're going to have a great conversation, don't we always? We have good conversations, but this one is going to be great. We're going to talk about uh, some Christian experience, and uh, I know it is going to be good. If you haven't had a chance to go out to halfwaytherepodcast.com, you can get show notes for everything we talk about, links to everything. And there's a little Patreon button there. If you like the show, want to support it, I would sure appreciate anything you can do. I know it's a weird time right now, but uh, that's that's helpful as well. So um, our guest today is Laura Berenger and Scott McKnight. They're the authors of the new book, A Church Called Tove. And I want to just welcome you guys. Welcome both of you to Halfway There. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Eric. Good to be with you. It is great to have uh, both of you. I want to hear a little bit about um, each of your stories. And so um, we'll just, we'll do that just a, just a little bit here, but tell us a little bit about what you're doing kind of right now, Lori, we start with you. What, what, where's God have you right now? And then we'll go to Scott. Well, interestingly, my day job is nothing to do with the <laughs> writing of this book. I'm a teacher. Um, I attended Wheaton college and got my degree in elementary education there. And I've been a teacher for over 20 years. I've worked with first and second graders, and I'm a kindergarten teacher now. And like I said, it has nothing to do with um, a church called Tove. So I feel really blessed that I've been given this opportunity and um, looking forward to talking about it more today. That'll be great. How about you, Scott? Well, um, I my day job is as a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary and an author. And um, I'm working right now on teaching a course on Revelation, uh, which is a lot of fun to teach. Yeah, that's always interesting. Dragons, dragons and wild things and false prophets and lions that become lambs. And so all kinds of fun things there. And uh, I preach and teach and write. Um, and I grew up in uh, American fundamentalism mm. um, and had a, a spirit born experience in high school that uh, propelled me into a career of Bible teaching and study. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was 17, I think at the time, and I'm almost 67. So about 50 years of uh, chasing this path, and it's been very rewarding. And Laura, Laura was the impetus behind this book with her commitment she felt personally she and her husband felt betrayed mm. by what occurred with the leader at willow creek a man that they trusted with yeah. bill hybels i felt somewhat betrayed because i had listened to him for 10 years and to the various leaders at willow but even more as a seminary professor i was provoked irritated and even angered by what I knew this would do to people in the church 
and what it would do to my students who would be curious and wondering why these things happen. And one of the most common questions we're asked is how, how can a person, and we, and we heard this about a numerous pastor, so this isn't just about Willow. How can a person like this have such a flourishing ministry? So you talk <laughs> about ordinary experience yeah. of Christians. Uh, this is the ordinary experience is really? That's what's really going on mm. behind closed doors, behind the curtains. And I thought that this was a man of God or a woman of God. And I now discover all this financial greed. I find power abuse. I find intimidation. I find sexual advances and abuse. And why is this going on? Why does God let this kind of person have this kind of success? Yeah, that's not an unfamiliar um, complaint either, right? The prophets are full of those kinds of complaints as well. Why do the wicked prosper? You know, yeah, hundred percent. Okay, so I'm really interested. I I want to get into your stories a little bit, but I got to ask this question, and I don't know if Laura, you want to address this, like, because it was kind of weird. Um, I used to live in Chicago land there, but it seemed like in the last couple of years, multiple big church pastors just kind of fell from grace or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it's like, why is that, is that just endemic in that place or is it, is it just happening in other places as well? Well, we, it's funny. We had talked about that in a podcast um, earlier with Steve Carter, and I've been mulling that question over in my head over and over again. And I don't know, I don't know that it necessarily has anything to do with the physical location of Chicago I feel like it could have happened anywhere. Um, perhaps there's a bigger draw because it's a larger population. But as we've gotten more and more into this book and conversation and research, we've discovered that this is not isolated to Chicago, that this problem of power abuse and sexual abuse and harassment is happening all over mm-hmm. the world, frankly. And when I called my dad that first evening, when the Chicago Tribune story broke about Bill Hybels, he said, I've seen this hundreds of times. This is a pattern. And um, so that's kind of where I've landed with that question is I don't personally think it has anything to do with Chicago specifically, but you're right. It was, it was a blow to have two churches literally miles down the road from each other implode at about the same time. Yeah, the the other, I mean, Chicago's a big city. Uh, So you're going to have a certain percentage of churches that are going to have this problem. So um, in a city this big, uh, you've got got a a bigger chance. But there's also many smaller churches that have similar problems uh, all over the United States and the world. But the interesting thing, I think, uh, Eric, um, is that the Me Too movement um, exploded into the Church Too movement for church people. And suddenly there was a willingness to call out pastors and a courage on the part of women. The Harvest Bible Chapel uh, story happened because of the indefatigable research and relentless 
chasing down of details by Julie Royce for the World Magazine. And she worked on that story a long time. So uh, they really came from two different angles uh, at roughly the same time. But the impetus and the strength of the calling out and the social media culture um, provoked these two stories largely at the same time, I think. Yeah, I think that, that is probably true. And what I think is really fascinating is that, you know, back in the 90s, whenever the Catholic church abuse scandal kind of broke, it was easy to go, oh, well, that's the Catholics, right? And to, yeah, and to pretend right. like it's not us, but it really is evangelicals as well. And we we can't hide from it any longer. I at, Around that time, I had a, a Mary DeMuth um, who wrote a book called yeah. We Too mm-hmm. um, on the podcast as well. She's a friend of ours. And uh, she, yeah, she wrote a great book about, I think every church leader should read about, yeah, we agree. about sexual abuse and how, what you should do and the right ways to handle it. Okay. So I want to go into just, I want to hear a little bit of your stories and I'm going to start with Scott because the story starts there, right? So, um, Scott, so you're, you mentioned that you were kind of grew up in this fundamentalist kind of world and had a, had a spirit filled encounter. Tell us that story. What happened? All right. Um, I, um, you know, my, my church was a church that had revivals every week, every fall. So there were, and and in those revivals, there was a lot of invitation time at the end of a service to try to get people to come forward and receive Christ and surrender their lives to God. And there were long uh, songs, just as I am, you know, I can remember singing through that thing. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, sometimes all f- four or five verses twice. Dozens so, of times. Yeah. Till the evangelist got somebody forward. <laughs> and I have stories about that, but um, also uh, our Sunday school classes, there was pressure. Uh, these teachers wanted to get people saved. Our youth ministry people wanted to get people saved. So I was, I grew up in a world of decisionism. And as a child, I made a decision, uh, I was conscious of what I knew. I wasn't pressured. I just didn't want to go to hell. And my mom and dad helped me pray the prayer. But it was in, uh, as a high school junior, I was at a church camp and quite impressed with one of the counselors who was a missionary in Austria by the name of Dwayne Bixel. And we spoke some German because I was taking German at the time. And he loved to play basketball and I did too. So we had we had conversations and then we had a Bible teacher that week that emphasized the Holy spirit. And, um, this Bible teacher came to our cabin on, let's just say a Monday night, the first night or the second night. And he said, um, between now and I don't know, sometime tomorrow, I want you to be alone and pray a prayer about, the Lord coming into your life or inviting the Holy Spirit to into your life. And that next morning, I got to breakfast early. No one was there. So I went down by a tree and sat down. And I prayed this prayer that the Spirit, uh, you know, like uh, it was all based on Ephesians 5.18. So um, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So I asked the Spirit to fill me. And I had um, a, a spiritual experience of of the sort that I had never had in my life before. And um, 
from that point on. I wanted to study the Bible. I began to study the Bible. I had we had a Bible study group in high school that met uh, before school, and uh, I began to teach myself Greek. Began wow. to read books, and that's what I wanted what, to do from that. What was the on. spiritual experience like? What happened? I mean, I don't know how to describe it other than the fact that I felt. Uh, I don't want to equate it with emotion, but it was emotional. It was psychological. It was transformative. I just felt like something. Uh, if I were Wesleyan, I'd say my heart was strangely warmed. <laughs> uh, so I'll say my heart was strangely warmed. There you go. And it was that kind of experience that was um, a convicting, convincing experience where I knew something genuine had happened that it, that was life transformative. And that's that was my experience. Yeah, well, I love that. I think I ask those questions because I don't think you're alone. I think a lot of us are sometimes hesitant to have those kinds of, or to describe those kinds of experiences, you know, because um, it can seem subjective. And yet it's, in my opinion, it's the norm for, for Christians. It doesn't happen all the time, but just try reading the Bible without finding a character that doesn't have a mystical experience of some sort. It's kind of tough to do. Well, you know, but I, I studied conversion experiences. I wrote a book about this called Turning to Jesus. One of the things I discovered is that there's almost a pattern of people who grow up with all, and who are very serious Christians who have had almost no experience like that. I mean, they haven't, they would say, I don't, I don't know what that's like. I've never had it. I've wanted it. I've prayed for it. It's never happened to me. And yet um, they are fully convinced of Christ and they believe in Christ and they follow Christ, read their Bible. So I, I just wonder if there's not certain personality types more inclined toward mystical type experiences. I mean, I had an experience in high school in prayer where I thought, I thought the whole room that I was praying with my eyes closed was just overwhelmed with bright light. And I woke up, I mean, I opened my eyes a few minutes later and it was my bedroom. You know, there wasn't anything. I thought maybe I was going to heaven or something like that. So it was an ecstatic mystical experience. And I haven't had anything like that since I was 17 or 18 years old. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So then, but it sounds like you ended up going into, like you really wanted to study scripture. Was that, that was kind of, like you taught yourself Greek. That's, that's pretty in depth. Are you, have you always been that kind of personality? Yeah, I'm pretty intense. Yeah. <laughs> so I started studying and I just listened to my pastors and they were the pastors I had at the time. I could, uh, I could easily say it would have been a different experience if I had, I had some people who were a little bit more sophisticated about theological study, but they were who they were. And I, I, I read vociferously. Uh, I went to a college in Grand Rapids and was able to go to Erdman's and Baker oh, wow. and Zondervan bookstores all the time. And I just started reading. Like the day George Ladd New Testament theology arrived at Erdman's, I was there <laughs> and they were selling some damaged copies for like $1.95. Oh my goodness. And I bought it and I started reading it. Here I am in college 
reading books that seminary students struggled with. Right. So I had been reading hard uh, enough that, you know, I, I read the books that I thought everybody was reading. Yeah, no, and that's really unique, right? That's access to a lot of yes, really deep, you know, kind of theology and, and biblical study stuff that most people, yeah. man, I'd have, I'd have loved that in college. That was, that would have been great. It sounds awesome. Uh, okay. Well then, um, Laura, how about you? I want to hear kind of your story of, you know, finding faith in, in Jesus and making it your own. Well, as I'm just sitting here listening to you guys talk and I'm one of those people that's never had a mystical experience and I would like to have one. Yeah. That's interesting, right? <laughs> so, um, and I was also thinking about my dad's conversion book, as you guys were talking that I don't have a moment like many people have. And for a long time, I thought maybe there was something wrong with me and I should think about, wait, what was that moment? But one of the um, ways that people come to Jesus that my dad describes in his book, and you can do it better than I can, dad, but he talks about people just being raised in the faith and you've always just kind of believed. And I would describe myself that way, that I don't have a moment, but I grew up in a Christian family. We always went to church and um, I I grew into the faith as I grew, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, 100%. And yeah. I, I love that because it's such a, um, like we, people have both kinds of experiences, right? And that's what I love to share on the show is just that both of them happen and they're both valid, right? That's, that's what, that's what it's yeah. all about. And I, I can't, I look back, I can't think of a time when I did not believe. I just always have. Yeah. I, I but I remember when you, I, I think you may have been in high school, you became, uh, you got really into Greg Speck. Is that oh, his name? Yeah, yeah. He was a, yeah, he was a pastor. He would speak at youth conferences. I wonder whatever happened to him. <laughs> I like yeah, him. you went to, you went to some of those and that kind of got you fired up, but I don't, yeah. Um, both of our children, uh, I think, I call it um, gentle nods of the soul. Yeah, um, is that both of them's their conversion or their their conversion, if you want to call it that. I think it's conversion, but it's not what a lot of people think it is. Um, were were gradual and in a sense organic, that they never really fought. I mean. Like our son was very involved in fellowship of Christian athletes in high school and went to the University of Kansas and was involved in a, I don't know what they were, some kind of athletes, Christian group that, and he played in the band. He played a guitar, I think, with Luke Axtell, who was a seven foot guard. Oh, wow. uh, so so uh, maybe not quite seven feet. So uh, I think both of them had a very similar type organic um, motion into the faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is, is great. I mean, that's the experience I want for my kids too. Right. Like <laughs> that's mm -hmm. Charles Spurgeon said that about his son. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, okay. So, you know, there's, there's a lot that I would love, I would love to cover and would normally normally do, but I want to get to, to the book sooner than later. So I want to ask one other question before we do that. Uh, have and I'll ask this to both of you. I'll start with you, Laura. Have you had a time when God felt far away in your journey or when you went through what you might call a spiritual desert that kind of shaped you? 
Um, wow, that's a good question. To be honest, this experience, when the news broke about Bill Hybels, it didn't shake my faith, but it was almost like tears almost immediately sprang to my eyes. And I remember saying to maybe my husband or maybe my dad, like, Bill Hybels was living a double life. How can this be possible? And it felt, uh, I don't know the word for it. It didn't shake my faith, but um, it was really disturbing. And we cared so much about Willow. We loved that church. I still love the church. And um, it's been, I guess, I, I don't know that I would say I felt far away from God, just a huge disappointment in his people. And, um, but at the same time, also felt very um, called to speak about this topic. So when you ask that question, this is what comes to mind, yeah. actually. Yeah. And it can be right. Uh, clearly when our leaders are, you know, well, they, they get so, uh, what's the, what are, what I'm looking for, put, put on a pedestal. Right. And when they fall down, it's, right. it's tough to, tough to reconcile that. Well, right. the other side of it though, is that pastors mediate good preachers mediate the, uh, God and grace and Christ to us. We experience the benefit of their gifts and so we, we recognize them as people that God has used in our life to lead us onward. So uh, that, that's, the, that's the other side of this, is the, yeah. is the incredible responsibility of, uh, of leaders like this to recognize how they're perceived by people in their church. I mean, Bill Hybels immediately pounded on the women, called them liars, said he would never leave Willow Creek. It would always be his church. He hasn't been heard from since. Yeah. He disappeared. This is two and a half years or more. And, uh, you know, there's no sign of any kind of remorse. Uh, maybe he has it, but he hasn't. It isn't public. And so this is, uh, this sort of experience is destabilizing. So Laura used the word disturbed. It's disturbing to people's faith. And some people, it not only de destabilizes them, but they, they become cynical of leaders. I mean, the number of people who have written to me or to Laura or that I've seen on Facebook and Twitter, you know, of I'll never go to a church again, I don't trust any leaders type mentality is because of these kinds of experiences. Right. So I... Um, but I, I haven't had, uh, since I was in high school, any sense of the farness of God. But when I was, uh, I grew up in fundamentalism. And when I went to college, uh, I began to explore the faith in an intellectually rigorous way. People like Bonhoeffer and Helmut Thielecki. And I started to read people who were way outside my tradition. Uh, George Ladd, Ralph Martin, etc. Yeah. And uh, I got to where I was in seminary, early years of seminary. I, I knew what I didn't believe anymore, but I don't, I didn't know where the center of my faith was. So it took a while. Uh, and for me, it was the studying of the gospels 
to see that the center of the faith better be Jesus or you're going to get messed up. And uh, so I, um, that was, that was sort of my uh, dark days of knowing more what I didn't believe mm. uh, than what I did believe. But I had a good friend that I played college basketball with who was a, went to, he didn't go to seminary, but was a pastor in the area where I was in seminary. And uh, he one day asked me what I believed. And I typed out some stuff and I said, I, I don't know what I believe exactly, but I do know what I don't believe. And I listed all the things that were important to him to believe. <laughs> yeah. So we had quite the conversation. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that's good. Okay. Well, so we kind of already started going into some of the, some of the book and Laura, you explained kind of, you felt this responsibility to talk about kind of what's happening here. Like, where do you think that came from? It came because we knew the women. Oh, you actually know these people. Yeah. Yeah. That part was destabilizing is a good word, is that there were some women that gave their names in the original Chicago Tribune article by Manya Brashear Pashman. I hope I said her name correctly. Yeah. Okay. And when we read the article and saw the names, it just, one my husband is, known Vonda Dyer for 20 years. And he said right away, he said, she's not lying. She would never do that. This is, this is true. And then like my dad said, Willow Creek got up on stage and told the world that they were lying, that they were colluding to take down Bill Hybels before he retired. The elders told us that they were disappointed with the women and how they were not following Matthew 18. Heather Larson was the executive pastor. She said the same thing. And knowing the women and knowing their character and then finding out more of the names and more people that we knew, um, I just felt like this is not right. This cannot be the end of the story. This cannot be how it ends that Willow Creek is allowed to slander people who are trying to tell the truth and do the right thing and, and win it. It, um, I just couldn't be quiet about it. I had people telling me to be quiet and I could not do it. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> it was uh firing your bones. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and she was fired in part by, uh, by her mother, my wife, Chris, who both of them became pretty fierce in and are fierce in defending the women against narcissistic male leaders mm-hmm. who abuse women. So they were both, okay, uh, this, we're not going to let you get by with this statement. We're going to say something. Yeah. And of course, you know, they don't have monster platforms, but they can, they can speak on Facebook and get involved with groups that are involved and, and widen their their impact, but both of them uh, were really into this topic and followed it. In fact, Laura dogged me to get more involved, and I, you know, I was doing other things. Yeah, I wasn't that interested in writing about Willow Creek, but eventually, I wrote a blog post, and that's pushed me into the scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there's so many places that we could go. I mean, were you surprised that they came out so hard against these, these women or. 
Yes. I, are you are you asking me? Well, yeah, it depends who you ask. Go ahead, Laura. Um, I I was yes, I could not wrap my head around what was happening because I thought this is a church, and it really bothered me. I like in my bones bothered me that the church was saying things like the women are lying. They shouldn't have been public about it. But then what bothered me even more is all of the people in the congregation that believed the leaders and elders is of course you should be able to believe your leaders and elders. And then the congregation, not all of them, but a number of people believed and followed and turned against the women who were simply trying to say, stop, something isn't right. So yes, it, it stunned me what Willow Creek was doing. I had not had an experience like this before with a church. I, like I said, I'm a teacher. I don't, I don't, I'm not involved in this kind of thing. I don't follow stories like this. I attend church and I'm involved in our congregation, but I don't, this isn't my life the way it is for my dad. So for me, it was shocking and destabilizing. And and I told Laura the first night. She was it a Thursday night, Laura? It was a Wednesday night, I think. A Wednesday night, but it was during the week. And I was sitting on the back porch, the back room, reading. And I said to Chris, "I saw this Tribune story pop up in my inbox." I said, "Uh oh, Willow Creek's in trouble. Women are accusing Bill Hybels." So she started reading it. And we, I think we passed it on to Laura and Mark to read. And then Laura called me. I think you guys were out somewhere. And then uh, I said to Laura that night, I said, Willow Creek has two options. They either confess that what happened is true or they denounce the women. And I said, everything will be determined at Willow Creek by how they respond to this. And there's only two options. Either it's true or it's false. And they took the path of calling the women liars. And it, it destroyed uh, the heart of truthfulness in that church. And Eric, this is, this is not unusual for churches to have leaders, uh, allegations come against them and they deny them. I, uh, my impression is there are far more who deny the allegations than who immediately admit that they're true. Yeah. And you know, that's hard to know, right? Let's see. Like, yeah. If it's not true, that's what you're going to do. But also, you know, you got to be open to the, but what you don't see is humility, right? Like they, yeah. they didn't come out with humility and go, all right, let's look at this. They, they just came after the the women and that then usually is indicative indicative of, Hey, that's, that's probably is true. And it turned out to be true. Yeah. Um, interesting. Okay. So here's what I'm, I'm really would love to know because, you know, we've, we've all seen these stories and we, you know, it's heartbreaking. Um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that we're just not doing a very good job making disciples in the, in the church and that maybe we need to do some things differently. What, what would you suggest? Oh, Scott, you can start and then we'll go to Laura. What would you suggest we do to like, to, mitigate this kind of not just this kind of thing but also make disciples that love truth and don't do these kind of things in the first place well um eric i this is what i've 
been asked and I've contemplated ever since this story broke uh, because I teach students who are asking this question. It's your job. The first thing I would say is there is no guaranteed process. I mean, you can't say, we're going to have a program. You can't say, we're going to have a program that will prevent this from ever happening. We're dealing with human beings and human beings can't be programmed. So I would say that uh, is one thing. Is The second thing I would say is this is about character. And it's about a character that works with other characters in a church to form a culture. So we have now in churches cultures of success that are measured by numbers and money. Um, I think Steve Carter says, uh, I think he says three things, Laura. It's butts in pew, bills in the plate. Yep. I think there's a third B. It was pretty funny when he said it to yeah. me once. Yeah. And um, we, this is how we measure success. Now, there was a time, there was a time, and it, it's still embedded in the Roman Catholic tradition, which is just, just as distorted. In fact, we had, I had quite a bit of stuff about the Catholic Church in my book, or in this book that we wrote, uh, parts that I wrote. And the editor didn't want him in there because he said evangelicals uh, are just going to dismiss um, the evangelical stories because they can say, well, Catholics are worse. <laughs> so there's there's plenty in there. But they ha have had um, a rigorous process of working on a person's character so that they become humble and submissive before God. They've tried to turn it into process, say the Ignatian way, yeah. um, the examine process, and the Benedictine process of ora et labora. Uh, all those things are, are attempts to work into a person's character so that they become what we are calling tov. Um, but I, I think that this is the work of God's grace, the work of the Spirit. And it is going to be characteristic of some people and not others. And we need to develop skills of discernment to see people who will lead toward toxicity and people who will lead toward tove. And uh, I think some of these things can actually be recognized by discerning wise people um, but that's no guarantee that every church is going to have those kinds of people selecting who's mm. going to become their pastor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hundred percent agree with that. I think, you know, we've got to make spiritual maturity our highest qualification, yeah. not, uh, yeah. not education, not experience, not how many people you can draw in or how well you can stand up on a platform and, and entertain people for 45 minutes. Laura, what do you think yeah. about that? I'm, I'm curious what your take on it is. Well, I remember feeling really frustrated with Willow Creek because the elder, I forget his name, he got up on stage after, I don't know, let's say the story broke in March, maybe this was June or July, and he announced that they have new processes in place. So for example, one of the processes was every time there's a man and a woman together, um, employee will have a third party with them. So it was like, those were the solutions to 
the problem, the fallout of the power abuse and the sexual harassment. And it, I remember just feeling frustrated and it felt very, it felt very empty. And I remember my dad and I having a conversation about this and he, dad, you said something like, it's not about having like a process or a procedure. It's about the character of the person. And it was like Willow Creek was skipping over all of that and landing on these formal procedures for men and women working together successfully. I mean, think about this. If, if, a, if a pastor wants to have an affair with a woman in the church, he's not going to have that kind of conversation when there's someone else in the room. He is going to find, right. or she is going to find, they are going to find an opportunity when they're alone. And you can do that. You, you can't be monitored every minute. And uh, so um, you can't, you can't create, you can create some wise processes and procedures, protocols, whatever you want to call them. Those are good. But if you don't have the character, it's not going to, it's not going to work. And if you do have the character, they're probably not needed. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. So, okay. So we've been talking about this. The book's called A Church Called Tove, Forming a Goodness Culture. And probably, I know what Tove is, but can you explain you know, where that word come, comes from and why you chose to call it that? Um, this one would be for me. Um, I think it was the first post. Laura maybe will know this. Um, it may have been the second post. When I said... Um, uh, what what places, what these kinds of churches that are having these kinds of problems need is goodness in the heart of the leaders and the leadership teams. And um, I did not know, in a sense, what I had unleashed for myself, but the number of people who responded to me about that idea of goodness and the way it struck me personally was I've got to study this more. I need to think about this. And I put it on the back burner until um, Tyndale asked us to write, or until we were in the process of writing and actually proposing to Tyndale uh, a book idea, that um, I began to work on the word tov more seriously to discover the, um, it, it's the Hebrew word for goodness, the um, intensity and the significance of the term in the Old Testament and this, the presence of it in the New Testament. You know, even terms like good works and the fruit of the Spirit is, is goodness. All these things are fundamentally important wow. concepts. And so I, I would describe the word tov as a master category for understanding the way we are to live before God. And so I started to study it, broke it down, um, tried to find examples. Uh, my example is Mr. Rogers, yeah, uh, because he's dead and he's out of the and he's not a current leader in the church who could who could be faking <laughs> it all. Right. So I wanted to study the word good, and uh, I did that, and we used that as the as the backdrop for the categories of goodness. Uh, that oppose or resist the categories of toxicity. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. So I hadn't considered, I knew that that meant good, but I hadn't considered that as also one of the fruit of the spirit. That's kind of an interesting angle. Um, that shows well, we, we should be characters. It's, it's one of the biggest words about ethics in the whole wow. Jewish tradition. Yeah. And we're, we're told God is good. And we say yes. that all the time, right? God is good. But well, open up your Bible to Genesis 1, and everything is tov. Yeah. Everything God creates and designs is tov. Wow. And humans are made to be tov, and we're, ethics are called to be tov. When Solomon prays uh, for the people that he's going to be the king over, he prays that he'll be able to show them and teach them the way of Tov. Wow. Uh, so I often call the, the Bible the book of Tov. Wow. How, how have we never, I've never, like some in my, in my studies, right? But I've almost never heard a sermon about that, right? Or heard a, I'll tell you why. a calling to that. Okay. <laughs> You're a Protestant. Yep. You're an evangelical. Grew up in the evangelical free church. Went to Trinity. You are an inheritor of Augustine and yep. Luther and Calvin. And the emphasis in that evangelical tradition is Romans 3.10. There is no, no one good, no, not one. So we are incredibly nervous about using this word good for ourselves. Right. We are that that's not the word we use. It's softer to say spirit filled or we're disciples, but tov, goodness, agathos, aristos, uh, these words in the Greek New Testament are uh, they show up enough that it, this is something we need to recall and to put back on the table. And so there's a freshness to the term. There's an undeniableness to the term. Isn't it the case that we will all say, when you encounter someone who is tov, you know it. Yeah. You say, wow, that person. It's like Mr. Rogers. You go. Just like Mr. Rogers. He's such a great example, and he's gotten a I lot told, of love. In I believe years. that guy, you know? Right. Yeah, he is an example, isn't he? Oh, man. Okay. I got to ask this. Laura, feel free to jump in here. I, I got to ask this because this is one of my pet peeves about how, as an evangelical, you're, you hit the nail on the head. And of course, I expected you to. Uh, but like we have this tradition that tells us we're terrible all the time, even after Christ, right? I don't deserve it. Yeah, I, I can't yeah. earn love. I can't. God shouldn't love me. Uh, but the reality is he does love you, and you are called to be like him, right? Like you, so do that. And so I think, is that language detrimental to growing to maturity and faith in Christ? Let's let the theologians. Okay. I'm just just soaking it all in. (laughs) Well, you know, I think in part, Eric, I've answered that with Augustine, Calvin, Luther. Yeah. Uh, This is the tradition we inherited uh, is that first you have to get people to realize how sinful they are. Okay. But then there is a, uh, a nervousness about saying, okay, now we're sinners but we're called now to be saints. Look at the words Paul uses for Christians. Yeah. He uses the word saint a lot. You know, in our tradition, only the Catholics use that word, a saint. Um, I remember in college using that word that so-and-so was a saint and someone said, well, I'm a saint too. And I thought, no, you're not. You know, (laughs) John Stott is, but you're not. (laughs) And this guy says to me, you just look at that word up in the New Testament. So I did. And, he, and he's right. This is a word used for ordinary Christians. 
who are who are working um, out their salvation by growing and being transformed by grace. So any notion that we remain uh, worthless, um, useless uh, type people is an exaggeration of the emphasis of the Bible is that, you know, and Luther said this, that we're simultaneously sinners and saints justified and uh, sinful. Um, the, the emphasis in the, in the New Testament is you, you, in a sense, you were a sinner. That's a category. You have been saved, and now you are called to walk in the new ways of righteousness and justice and peace and love and grace. And, and that's what Paul, that's what Peter, that's what John expects people. John says, if you don't love other people, mm -hmm. the love of God is not in you. So uh, we need to have positive categories for believers who are filled with the Spirit and, and to use those categories without demanding utter perfection and without being utterly shocked every time someone uh, commits some peccadillo. Um, we, need, we need a category that um, we are the people of God and we are embodying God's grace, and people are watching that and saying there's something different going on in that person. Yeah, which is always the goal, but it you know you got to strive for it. And I think I think what happens is with that language that we're talking about, it breeds this sort of false humility that people sometimes say, "Oh, it's all Jesus. It's all it's not me," but really, it's Jesus in you, right? That's yeah. It's it's together. It's this partnership that we have with the Lord, the participation that we get to do, um, which is really is so much more powerful, so much more empowering, which I think is you see all of our scripture as well. So, man, I love that. OK, what um, so what should we do? Like, we, we, yeah, I think this understanding is a huge piece. But what, what else should we do? What can what can like an ordinary listener, somebody who else, who's out there? looking at their church going, how do we, how do we foster this in my church, in my community? What can I do? Do you have any thoughts on that, Laura? Well, one of my dad's students said it takes seven years to change the culture of a church. So I, I guess I would first of all say it's not, it's not a quick fix. If you're in a church that is not tov or is not living is is toxic then know that it's not a quick fix for the whole organization to change but my dad uses the term pockets of tov where you can create pockets of tov within your congregation you can be people who put others first who put people above the institution who seek truth um i'm just thinking of the seven the seven marks of Tove that we have in our book, that you can be people that nurture grace, that nurture empathy, etc. even if your entire organization does not. Yeah, absolutely. It all starts with you, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you only yeah. have control over what you can do, and you can be striving to be a person of Tove, and hopefully it will create a larger pocket within your congregation. And, and that is, um, there's an instinct, Eric, in the Western world, American politics, et cetera, 
of uh, let's let's get the church to change to Tove, and then I'll be a part of that church. Yeah. And so there's the, there is that sense that okay, we'll we'll uh, we'll have some sermons, we'll have a program, uh, we'll get a Tove pastor, etc. That's um, that's thinking that the group is going to change, um, and then. I, you'll you'll fit into it. I, I think that we need to begin with ourselves. And, you know, I've had a hundred pastors ask me this question already in the last couple of years. And my point always, you need to become an agent of Tove. And you need to ask yourself whether your relationships with the associates and with the administrative assistants, we used to call them secretaries, uh, that your relationship with other people in the church is actually Tove, or if you're just presenting a persona of Tove on the platform on Sunday. Uh, so, you know, what do ordinary people who uh, who know you well think of you? Do they think you're Tove? Uh, if not, then you you start working right there and start building a pocket of Tove around yourself. Yeah, that's that's a big thing, I think. Uh, I well, but, I love uh, that. This student of mine uh, had done a PhD in organizational transformation. I had no idea there was such a PhD. <laughs> and he said to me, "I I like your book, but he said you you use all the wrong terms." And uh, what he meant by that is you don't know any of the terms that are actually a part of organizational transformation. Then he said this, but here's the, the one thing I wish you had in your book. I wish you would tell people. It takes seven years to change mm. the culture of an organization. I said, a church too? He said, yes. Seven years yeah. for, I mean, you know, let's just say you're mostly Tove. It's not going to take seven <laughs> years. But it takes a long time to transform the culture of a church. You know, we're seeing this a little bit with Willow Creek right now, where Bill Hybels left, right? And we're hearing stories of congregants saying that they feel like the leadership is top down, that they're telling them what to do. And I guess my point is that just because you've removed the leader, the culture still exists. Yeah. And yeah. it's not a quick fix. It's not easy to change. What's really encouraging for us is that there are people resisting what's going on right now. They're resisting this top-down change, um, sudden change. I mean, Eric, there's some really crazy things going on right now. So it's probably bad examples even to talk about until we can see the light at the end of the tunnel here. But um, this is so important is that um, a, uh, a toxic leader, doesn't matter which one you take, Southern Baptist churches, C.J. Mahaney, all of them, uh, they had what I call retainers around them. These are people who nurtured their persona and protected them and defended them at all costs. And that starts forming a culture. And it is really difficult to remove all those retainers and try to start all over. Uh, it's usually a collapse of an organization. Yeah, and then which... Yeah, it's such a weird thing, right? It's sort of bittersweet in a way. You know, you want yeah, to see you want is. to see the goodness, but good term. So yeah. I had um, one of my friends is a former elder of Willow Creek. She was an elder there for thirty years, and 
I hope I don't sound too doomsday, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in this. She she looked at me one point. This was when the story was just first breaking. And I was just getting to know her, frankly. And I, I felt like I want to follow her around all day and just listen to her and absorb her wisdom. But she looked at me and said, Laura, Willow Creek just needs to burn to the ground. She said it all needs to burn. And then, then they can start rebuilding. Because I think what's happened is you have so much of the culture existing still within the organization. And every time you peel back a layer, you find more dysfunction. That her point was start over, root it all out and start all over. Wow. Can you imagine somebody saying that in 1998? No. I mean, they they, they were the pinnacle, right? They were the, they, they were the example that everybody wanted to be. But About yes, 2008. Yeah. But I will say this is an elder who did resist, who resisted Bill Hybels. Wow. And here's one example that she shared with me. She voted against him one time in an elder meeting, and he refused to look at her and did not speak to her. She calls it an icing out for six months. Wow. So there's people that tried. Resistance is futile, isn't that what they say about about something on on? Uh, it's not Star Wars; it's another one. On yeah, that's Star the Borg. The Borg, the yeah. The Borg is coming. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would love to see uh, you know this sort of the John thirteen Jesus washing the feet spirit of service come back in our leaders. I think we we desperately desperately need that. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's the way Jesus made disciples. That's the way we're going to make disciples. That's just how it works. You know, that's the other oriented that's people first. That's knowing people's names and stories that, that is, the, uh, it's a beautiful image for the kind of person who probably has the character of Tove. Yeah. Uh, how do we get yeah. that back? Cause I, so I spent you, you, I wouldn't expect you to know this, but I, like I went to, I told you I went to Trinity for my undergrad, um, which was great school. I did a year and a half at Ted's, and then I ended up at Denver Seminary to finish longer story. But, um, you know, I, so I spent like nine years getting a three-year degree. I've been a long time in in that kind of <laughs> world, right? I crammed it in, uh, and you know, I I could tell you, I know people who I'm who weren't ready to be pastors, but they were out there being pastors, and they got jobs before I did, right? So like, okay. Mm. What what do we do with that? And then, so for me personally, that's kind of a sore spot. But so I don't know what to do. Like, how do you, how do we fix that? You're training pastors. Like, what, what do you, what would you say, Scott? Well, Eric, this is the, this is the issue. And, and I, I sympathize with you because I taught at Trinity. I think I was there before you were there. Um, and then um, I'm teaching at a seminary now and we can't control uh, the culture that is in the church right now of what makes for a successful church and a successful pastor. It's so large and it's so deep and long and with such a history that we can't just snap our fingers and it's gone. So I think um, what our seminary, and I talk in my classes all the time about this with students, um, a pastor, pastor's people, now, that sounds like a silly statement, but I said, and I tell students, who are you pastoring 
and who considers you their pastor? Too many seminary students, and this was characteristic of Trinity at times when I was there, and I will freely confess that I think I was part of the problem on this, is that a pastor was a preacher on Sunday morning who expounded scripture publicly in intelligent ways and informed ways based on Hebrew and Greek. Yep. Okay, that was that was typical. But the and that was a ruling image. Now maybe I'm biased because I taught New Testament. So that was the um, conveyor belt part that I put on the on the conveyor belt. But um, I think that that right there is where a, there's a major distortion is we should not look at church as a place where we go on Sunday morning to hear so-and-so expound scripture for us and we can be impressed by them. I don't think that's what church is. And I think we need to change those kinds of areas where we say church is about a fellowship of people who are living with one another, following Jesus together, worshiping God um, as a fellowship of, of people on Sundays and praying with one another, et cetera, that that's what a church is. Um, and so we need people who are nurturing that in churches as the people who are pastors. So this is why Eugene Peterson yeah. crabbed for how many years? 40 years? 30 years about what was going on in churches. Yeah. They were using the business model and a model of success that was out of sync with spiritual formation and spiritual mentorship. What did he, he saw a pastor as a spiritual director. Well, that's a completely different thing. Sure. And is. we don't measure that in churches today. Well, it can't be done in mass, right? And so that's yeah. I think yeah. the the hard part. Um, you know, it's, it's really tough to, to do spiritual direction with 500 people. You've got to do it one-on-one -on -one or in a small group and, uh, that doesn't scale, you know, it doesn't yeah, scale. So sure. maybe, maybe the church doesn't need to pay. This is kind of my thing. Maybe I don't need to be paid by the church. Maybe yeah. I need to just be a pastor. So anyway, that's uh sorry, that's a little bit of my own, my own story, but I, I am, I do, I care deeply about it because I, I mm -hmm. want to see. I want to see the the church. It matters, right? It matters. The yeah. disciples we make today will set the direction for the church in the next five hundred years, and so we've got to we've got to take that seriously. And uh, and I do so. I appreciate you guys doing that and putting putting out this book. Um, looks really great, guys. You can get it um, anywhere you get books. You can get it on the Amazon. Uh, it is a church called Tove, uh, and I appreciate you guys being here, uh, Laura and Scott. Is there anything you guys want to leave us with? What if I ended by reading our closing prayer at the end of our book? Would that be all right? That'd be awesome. Okay. Dad, do you want to say anything before I read it? No, no. I think uh, we, we want this book to be in the hands of leaders in churches, uh, not just the pastor to preach about, but the leaders in churches to start nurturing culture at the leadership level. So, okay, yeah. okay Laura. Okay. Father of all mercy, you know the hearts and minds and acts of all your people. You know all and you reveal your truth in Christ. Grant to us, your people, including the pastors and churches mentioned in this book, to know the truth of the gospel and to know the truth of your grace, which transforms us into Christ-likeness. 
Grant further, O Lord, the rich graces of reconciliation between those on opposing sides of these devastating events in churches. Grant this so that we may live in the light, knowing the graces of your forgiveness and power and walking in the way that brings you all the glory. Through him who lives with you, the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Mm, amen. Laura, Scott, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thanks very much, Eric. It was good. Thank you. Yeah, it was a good interview.